and welcome to another episode of In Theory, the podcast of the JHI blog. I'm the Arnad Johnny. I'm joined today by Erica Milam, Professor of History in the Program in the History of Science at Princeton University, to talk about her book, Creatures of Cain, The Hunt for Human Nature in Cold War America, out last year from Princeton University Press. Could you tell us a little bit about how this project came about in the first place? Yes, I uh, I started out being fascinated by a program called Man, a Course of Study, it, which is an educational program that was intended originally for first and second graders that was created by Jerome Bruner at Harvard, who's a cognitive psychologist, and um, a couple of anthropologists, a bunch of teachers, and it was designed to teach these young kids about what it meant to be human. And what I found totally fascinating about it is they had intended it in conception to be uh, progressive, to be anti-racist, to be scientific with a humanistic edge. And um, it was taught and was incredibly popular among friends schools. And I actually did some of my education in friend school, so I found that fascinating. And then I found out that this sort of very well-meaning sweet program, at least from what it seemed like from my perspective, uh, by the time it was conceptualized in the 1960s, it became commercially available for the first time in 1970. And by the mid-1970s, it was being debated on the floors of Congress as a uh, as an educational program that was a flagrant abuse of taxpayer funds that had gone into it, that was teaching young children about violence, and worse, it was using cultural anthropology as a way to undermine uh, conceptions of what it meant to be an American, and which was part of why it was such a flagrant abuse of taxpayer money. And I just thought, how did this disconnect come about? How is it that we can understand the intentions of the program on the one hand, and then the um, the really surprisingly critical, from my perspective, surprisingly critical reaction on the other? I thought, okay, well, maybe some of what's going on is that there was a like, where were the people who were super critical of this program getting their ideas about human nature? And so I started looking into this and thinking about what are the popular representations of human nature that were current in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And that was how I came across uh, books like Robert Ardrey's Territorial Imperative and started realizing that if you picked up one of the... Um, best-selling books about human nature in this time period, actually the vision that you would get of human origins, of human nature from a biological perspective was one of violence and aggression. And I thought, oh, so that's really interesting. How do we have this then big disconnect between what I thought were professional conversations about human nature and biological research and this popular understanding of what human nature meant at the time period. And so this raised for me a series of questions that I that I desperately wanted answers to that was difficult to solve just from this one case study of man, a course of study. Um, and those were things like, how do ideas about human nature um, that are circulating in American culture change over time? Who has voice in those conversations? And of those people who have voice, who has authority 
what are they arguing, why, and on what evidentiary basis. And so the book really emerges from these series of conversations to try and document how conversations about human nature shift dramatically between the 1950s, 1960s, when the program had its origins, and the late 1960s and into the mid-1970s when uh, the reception of the program hit. And so I was trying to parse that that was where that was where the book started and it so it started as this sweet little kernel about the history of pedagogy and ended up just blowing up into this larger conversation about who has the who has scientific authority to talk about human nature in this very fraught period of american history mm-hmm. and and so you write that this book then is about a shift fundamentally in how parts of the american public come to see human nature. Um, and, and you define it as about the transition from thinking about it um, as, as about being about cooperation and harmony as to, to being something defined specifically by our capacity for violence and, and specifically murder. Why does this shift happen? This is the question of the book. And uh, on a very basic level, Part of my answer is that this shift reflects a fundamental change in the questions that scientists are asking about what it means to be human. So in the 1950s, uh, the largest question that scientists who were interested in humanity as a whole were interested in solving was, how is it that humans are so violent? How can we explain uh, World War II? How can we explain the violent struggle over civil rights in the United States? And how is it that humans are capable of enacting um, not only harm, but also murder on other humans? And at at the time, this felt like a very fraught question because it seemed as if, from the evidence that was available, that actually humans are one of the only species on Earth where adult individuals will deliberately kill other adult individuals of the same population. Um, And then by the 1970s, that had really shifted to trying to understand how is it that animals, how is it that humans ever cooperate in the first place? And so this this shift in question from how can we explain violence to then assuming that humans are violent and trying to understand how the origins of cooperation really shifted this underlying assumption about how humans are operating in the world. And that operated on a number of different levels. One of them is at the, at the level of the individual. So if you have two individuals, how is it that those two individuals interact? Um, another is at the level of groups within uh, a larger social structure. So how does group A relate to group B? And then at an even bigger structure was this question of, for example, nation states. And so how do nation states relate to other nation states? How do species interact with other species? And um, this was these parallels uh, really uh, provided a lot of the intellectual traction for these questions at the time. So evidence gathered about individuals could then be generalized to 
questions about groups and whether those were by the 1970s identified racially, uh, by gender, by socioeconomic class, et cetera, et cetera, uh, or um, then about actual nation states as well. And uh, I, I can get into it a little bit later, but there were three main forms of evidence that people used, uh, bones, so physical evidence of the past. And then if there aren't, if, if it's difficult to come by paleoanthropological evidence, um, cultural anthropology and um, primatology. And on that question of different forms of evidence um, and the place of scientists in a public conversation, I was really struck when reading your book by the enduring place of some of these questions. Uh, questions like how scientists and medical professionals acquire authority, how they use that authority to communicate with the public. You know, these have all been questions, I think, at the forefront of many people's minds during this pandemic. Uh, thinking of the very beginning in the initial weeks and months in the United States of how ubiquitous uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci was in conversations about what to do next, um, on the news and in, in, in popular publications. Um, is there is there something about the story that you're telling about the place of scientists in a public conversation over human nature um, that has made you you know think differently about how science and authority have been playing out in the in these last few months? Yeah, I, it's a great question. I think that one of the things that I find so interesting about politics today is this real split between the way that scientific expertise works in the United States and the way that it works in other countries. Um, and so I think of Creatures of Cain now in this context as actually providing in the context of one specific aspect of scientific culture, um, a bit of an answer about how the um, how skepticism about science begins to uh, arise in the United States as a political conversation. Um, and so one of the things, I guess one thing that I would also say just from the outset is that there is a difference in the way that scientists perceive their own process and the way that they are willing to speak to the general public. Um, and there's something very different about, I think, uh, physicians and medical evidence and medical epidemiologists who really think of their discipline as something that is grounded in public policy from the outset. And so there's these, these are my conversation about human nature goes in one direction. And I think that epi medical epidemiology moves in a different direction. So I don't want to claim that there's a uh, direct correlation between the two of them. Um, but one of the, the themes that I became fascinated by in Creatures of Cain is this question of what I call colloquial science. And there is a way in which I think for intellectual historians, one of the things that we need to understand is that if our question is how and why ideas about anything change over time, that colloquial scientific publications that are addressed to a general public do phenomenal amounts of intellectual work. And that uh, looking only at scientific materials that are written for professional audiences is only at best a partial picture. Um, and that if we're really interested in how ideas change, we have to look at this engagement of scientists with the public and the kinds of publications that were intended to address not only experts in the field, but also um, 
other people. And so in the course of my book, one of the things that I find fascinating is that in the 1950s, as you say, scientists are extremely interested in addressing a general public. And part of this is facilitated by a real change in the publishing structure and what is available. So after World War II, you have the rise of um, uh cheaply available intellectual paperbacks. And that becomes a new genre that is not only about putting into paperback, easy to read, uh, cheap to buy, new books that are coming out that are intended for this crossover scientist and the general public audience, uh, but also republishing classics. So uh, Darwin's On the Origin of Species gets republished along with a bunch of Freud and sort of et cetera. Like there's this, there's really an explosion of cheaply available paperbacks in this era that starts to drive that. Of course, we also have the rise of television. And so scientists are going on the Johnny Carson show in order to talk to him about uh, what is happening. Um, and that is considered to be or one could think of it as late night educational TV that isn't geared towards kids, but is in fact about a commitment to scientific literacy um, through the medium of television. And uh, at the same time, you also have the rise of television documentaries um, and science documentaries on TV. So the genre of uh, medium media by which these uh, conversations about science is elaborated is multiplying and is just growing hugely throughout the time period. Um, and in the case of my book, one of the things that I find fascinating is that although there's this huge commitment in the 1950s that is seen as a moral obligation for the scientists who are invested in questions of human nature, human evolution, and trying to teach the public about how evolution really works in order to correct any misapprehensions or misunderstandings that had come about as a result of World War II and um, questions of uh, Holocaust and uh, the way that people um, really had associated evolution with potentially ideas of racial hierarchy. So a deep moral obligation to use evolution to talk about human equality across all races and cultures. Um, by the 1970s, there's a real retreat from that and an opening up of a split between uh, professional scientists who talk only to professional scientists and popularizers. You can't see my air quotes, but you can perhaps hear them. Mere popularizers who are writing specifically for a general public. And then that public audience begins to undermine their professional identity. And so you see the rise of people like Carl Sagan, of Stephen Jay Gould, of people who are immensely good at reaching popular audiences, who are also publishing professional work but whose professional credibility among their colleagues is in part undermined by their public presence. Um, and so one of the things that begins to happen is that scientists, what I would say is begin to, as their theories are accused of being uh, potentially racist, potentially sexist, potentially classist, etc., retreat to, I am merely telling you the facts and the political and economic interpretation of those facts should actually be left to the professionals, not to scientists. And so a, a split between 
professional action, or sorry, a split between political action and scientific expertise. And I think of this as a little bit as a kind of retreat to objectivity along the lines of Ted Porter's trust in numbers that he talks about uh, in the early part of the 20th century, late 19th century. Um, and I think that there's also then a way in which there's a, there's a big difference in terms of thinking about, well, so, okay, so, so that's, the, that's the background to the book. And this is what happens within the professional conversation around what it means to be human and people who are trying to address this question of what it means to be human is the rise and what I what I do think of a little bit as the fall of this colloquial scientific market, this crossover market where people who publish books that have a wide audience reach are also read by professional scientists, are debated by graduate students uh, in the halls in their uh, in their apartments uh, late at night, etc. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about the conversation that's happening today and these and the politics of expertise is this real difference between um, how do scientists act in a time of crisis and what is a time of crisis? And of course, when there are huge events that are going on that have phenomenal repercussions politically, economically for most of the country, and that those converse, and that those consequences are differentially split along socioeconomic and racial lines. That we need to, as a society, turn to experts to understand what that means. And so these moments of crisis, I think, are really interesting for two reasons. One is that um, when fast decisions have to be made along political and economic lines, science is hard. Science is um, at times difficult to understand, rendered in technical language. There's mathematical models. There are conclusions that are framed in terms of probabilities. And this sort of, this kind of, of uh, distancing that has happened from explicit policy recommendations means that in moments of crisis where people have to make decisions quickly, they simply turn to people that they trust because there isn't enough time for people to, for politicians, for example, who are not trained in the sciences, to reason through all of the evidence themselves. And so it really comes down to this question of trust in science, which is something that historians and sociologists of science have talked a lot about in recent decades. Um, and Creatures of Cain then is about one of these conversations in public about the science of human nature uh, where trust is slowly eroded. And it's slowly eroded in part because conversations that um, seem to be at the beginning about the origins of all humanity become uh, really questions of race, sex, religion, class, and, um, and, and politicians and members of Congress, et cetera, just um, there's, a, there's a different kind of reaction to that where it isn't it doesn't feel so clear and so how do you how do we as a society take definitive action when in fact all of the options that are available to us 
are different degrees of probability and risk. Um, I just, in the last few weeks, I've been thinking a lot about Ulrich Beck and uh, risk society and trying to parse how people make decisions when there are no decisions that feel safe. Mm -hmm. And the moments of conflict that you're talking about are really at the forefront of of the story you're telling, especially across the the middle of the 20th century. So for instance, to set the scene um, and lay out some of the stakes of why this cooperation versus violence question is so charged, um, you begin by listing, you know, really explicitly some of the political convulsions of, of of this moment. So you write, quote, the slow pace of change produced by the civil rights movement coupled with economic hardship precipitated urban unrest and riots in Newark, Detroit, Baltimore, and other major American cities. Newspapers carried accounts of political revolutions in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, not to mention the assassinations of President John F. Kennedy, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., and Robert Kennedy. Are your actors thinking about their moment as one about the choice between harmony and chaos? I think that there is there is certainly an element of that, yes. And I think that these these questions, the questions that they are asking, the questions to which they want answers, are phenomenally important questions. And one of the things that I find uh, so wonderful about the sources that I use in this book is that everyone's asking the big questions, right? Like it's not like there's. Um, I think that there are people now who get excited about science because they are interested in all sorts of big questions about the world. Like, why is grass green? How is it that we understand the world in which we live? How do questions of social and economic difference get created in the first place? Like, what can we do as a society to solve these big existential questions that are around us. And then it turns out when you actually start doing the work, you are asking a very, very tiny question about a very small group of people. And uh, you have an evidentiary basis of, you know, a hundred trials or maybe a thousand trials. And it's just not clear. And I think this is the same problem that, um, you know, history grad students right now are also wrestling with, in a sense, is what difference does my research make in this larger world? And one of the things that I have found, that I found inspirational about the sources that I was reading is actually they're just tackling these big questions head on and they're going for it. And they're going for it with a phenomenal uh, lack of evidence because you, like, there's just so much about the world that we don't know And I think that the attempt to try and answer big questions that matter to us based on the evidence that we have and the evidence that we can create is amazing, right? Like we just actually need to ask these questions. When thinking about questions of harmony and chaos, there's a big difference between the way that people conceptualized the social dynamics that operated within a group and the social dynamics that operated between groups. And so more or less, the assumption uh, at the beginning of the story and at the end of the story is the same, which is that within a group, individuals have a tendency to cooperate and different groups have a tendency to conflict and have aggressive 
relations. And so there's always this difference between the two. And so one way of conceptualizing one of the changes that happens over the course of the book is from the 50s to the mid-1970s, there's really a shift in the way that evolutionists concentrate on uh, the dynamics that operate within groups to the dynamics that operate between groups. And part of this is because the way that people define groups changes. So within a group, often in the 1950s, the assumption was that group at a minimum represented the family. And so you have cooperation within the family, particularly between males and females who are cooperating together in order to raise the next generation of, um, of kids for, uh, you know, the betterment of American society. So this is the nuclear family idea. And um, by the mid-1970s, people are actually thinking about the ways that, you know what, men and women have different agendas when they come to social relations and that uh, perhaps a family is not a site of uh, inherent cooperation. And so all of a sudden, it becomes possible to conceptualize families as, in fact, competing interests uh, at the level of the individual and that there is almost no group cohesion. So if the family in the 1950s uh, was seen as the seed of social cooperation, by the mid-1970s, families themselves are dissolving as sites of cooperation and therefore do not function especially well as seeds for cooperation in general society. Uh, at large. So I think that these questions of harmony and chaos really map onto uh, different sites of focus that are chosen by the scientists themselves. And, and I think that also there's ways in which the events that you talk about, or the events that I talk about, and, and you have also just mentioned, <laughs> um, that these events are perceived as moments of crisis. And so one of the things that I find really interesting is the way that crisis talk focuses collective attention on certain aspects of a problem and sidelines other aspects of the conversation. And so part of it is what is seen as a crisis. So if in the 1950s, violence was seen, moments of violence were seen as crisis, then you have effectively long periods of peace punctuated by moments of war. And those war moments are the crisis. And so therefore, the thing that has to be explained is the aggression that is inherent to war. How does that happen? Um, and by the time that you get to the 1970s, aggression is no longer crisis thinking. Aggression is something that is seen as being uh, so ubiquitous as to no longer require explanation and uh, attention is being drawn to other kinds of questions that feel as though they are uh, more pressing um, about race, about gender, about class. Um, and so those, those kinds of explanations require um, different sites of investigation and this universal model of cooperation uniting a vision of humanity begins to break down. Mm -hmm. And so 
if those are the stakes of your book, um, then I guess if somebody were to just kind of quickly glance at the cover, a person might think that the book really is about apes, right? So, <laughs> and, and, and not necessarily large questions about the kind of crises and, and political choices of the 20th century. Why is research on apes and the relationship to human nature such a good place for you then to, to excavate everything that you've been talking about? What do apes have to do with all of this? Absolutely. The, there are three main forms of evidence that scientists are using throughout the book. And one of them is paleoanthropological evidence, which you could sort of think of as uh, the fossil bones that people are digging up that provide direct access to what happened in the past. It is, of course, still inferential access. Uh, and it is inferential because uh, there are huge gaps in the fossil record in the time period. And it turns out now, after decades and decades of paleoanthropological evidence, we have way better evidence than they had in the 1950s and 1960s and 1970s. By the 1960s, actually, when you read the paleoanthropologists, they are amazed at how much more evidence they have than people had two decades earlier. So there's always this sense of more evidence being available. Um, but there, so, so direct evidence from bones about the past. Um, then there are two other forms of evidence. And, and these come into play in part because you can get certain kinds of information from bones. So for example, if you find a shoulder joint of a uh, of a fossil, you can tell from the shoulder joint whether or not that particular creature swung from the trees or walked on all fours or walked on two legs. Like how information about how joints work gives you a great deal of access to the lifestyle of the animals uh, that uh, that that skeleton reveals. But if you don't have bones, because there's, you know, a couple million years of gap in the fossil record, uh, unfortunately, it turns out that the gap in the fossil record of the 1950s and 60s is exactly the moment that people are really obsessed with, which is when did humans become human? And uh, that question has now telescoped so that it is no longer a single originary moment, but that, in fact, humans become human over um vast stretches of time. And so primates come in, as does cultural anthropology, as ways of trying to recreate how early humans might have acted and behaved. And origins are important because when people conceptualize what human nature is, there's an assumption that human nature became a thing at some point, and therefore, by understanding our origins, it gives us access to understanding the, the human condition today. Um, and so primates come in as models, in part because of this reflexive relationship with cultural anthropology. And cultural anthropology during this time period is also uh, really exploding. So thanks to airline travel, thanks to uh, decolonization and access to new kinds of territory and, um, and communities, um, people are doing a lot more cultural anthropological work. One of the things that cultural anthropologists begin to be concerned about is that if, you, if they were to use a single human culture as a stand-in 
for this originary moment, then that would imply that some human cultures are more, again, air quotes, primitive than others. And so that looks, begins to look in the context of the American civil rights movement, uh, extremely problematic and potentially racist. And um, as a result, primatology seems to provide a way of talking about early human culture without the concerns of cultural anthropology and the differential expression, like the differential uh, treatment of human cultures. So it allows, if you if you think of early humans as being, uh, early human culture as being something that you can understand through primates, then that it allows you to talk about all human cultures today as uh, equally complex, equally evolved, if you wanted to use that word, um, and in other words, sort of equally beautiful, et cetera. And this is one of the difficulties that then explains what happens with the Manic Course of Study program, is that the Inuit culture that was used as a model for thinking about what it means to be human within Manic Course of Study was criticized as being a bad moral example for uh, regular Americans. Um, and this causes, of course, um, huge outcries uh, within Inuit communities who are appalled at the way that uh, sort of uh, American politicians are talking about uh, their culture. Um, and it also, uh, it also highlights a real distrust that is developing of cultural anthropology uh, in American culture in the early 1970s. And, and so primates then enter this conversation in a different way than you might expect today. So today, the way that we think about which primate should you use as your model of human behavior, the answer is always, well, we should turn to the one that is most closely related to us. And the assumption of genetic similarity uh, is really crucial to the way that we think about primate models. So in the 1950s and 1960s, we don't have comparative genetic data. Um, and actually, the way that scientists thought about the best model for understanding human culture, early human culture, wasn't uh, relational at all. It was ecological. And so what they tried to do is to use a primate as a model that occupies the same ecological niche that early humans would have occupied. So wide open savanna, retreating to the trees and the forests for safety, it looks an awful lot like baboons. And so baboons are the first real behavioral model for thinking about the origins of human culture. And uh, that work begins uh, really in the 1960s, in the late 1950s and 1960s, uh, and uh, out of seemingly nowhere, uh, research on wild chimpanzees begins as a result of Jane Goodall's work in Gombe, Tanzania. And at, no one had tried this work because they had assumed that it wouldn't work. You can't habituate chimpanzees. They're very difficult to find in the wild, et cetera, et cetera. And the fact that 
her work succeeds and then leads to uh, a study uh, that is still continuing today. Actually, so is the baboon research. I mean, this is the amazing thing, right? Is all of these long-term research projects that get started in the 1960s and 1970s, many of them are still going today. And so we have continuous records of the social lives of these animals in generational uh, generational data also that provide very rich accounts of uh, primate social lives. And so primates enter this conversation about what it means to be human, in part because of uh, debates over what constitutes the best form of evidence for which to argue about uh, what human origins would have looked like and how early humans would have behaved socially. And so if, if much of what you're talking about then is about the relationship between scientific practice all kinds of aspects of everyday life for the American public and something like evolutionary theory. How how did you go about treating something like evolutionary theory as an object when much of what you were after delves into the ways in which practitioners behaved and changed things materially and about how these things are, are moving through both the scientific community and the, the, the so-called American public, I I guess, how how did you go about holding those things apart when it was appropriate and then getting into how they constitute one another when that was your object? That seems to me at least a kind of difficult writing problem. I'm I'm wondering how you went about holding those things apart when you needed to and then bringing them together in the way that you just described. So when I wrote this book, I went through two very, very different forms of organization. And... (laughs) And I think that trying to come up with a way to hold the book together that worked uh, was the biggest question of how of of how to actually produce the final book. And I think of the book as having uh, a a American football shape, which is it starts in the 1950s with a coherent conversation and it ends in the mid 1970s. Uh, with a coherent conversation, and the entire middle of the book explodes into a giant ball. And so I have to sort of bring it back together at the end. And the question of how do I present the stuff in the middle? Much of the middle of the book are conversations that are happening in parallel in different aspects of society. Uh, And how did I organize those and which went where? Uh, was the organizational difficulty associated with the book. And it ends up being mostly chronological. Um, But I try to tease out this uh, one thread is about how scientists are involved in and presenting their research to students and not necessarily to undergraduate students uh, or graduate students, but how they're presenting it to elementary school students. And the deep investment in pedagogy is something that comes out of this moment in the 1950s, where scientists really feel like they need to be involved in educating the American public. And that's not only educating people who are um, actively involved in political discussions of the time, but the next generation as well. And so that became one strand of evidence. Another strand of evidence was the professional conversations about what was happening. And that is the thread that I actually worked out first, which is 
what are the scientists saying to each other? And how are those conversations changing over time? And then I went through and I read uh, a bunch of articles, all of the articles that I could find from a series of journals, from Scientific American, from National Geographic, from the New York Times, uh, etc., and sort of read through long swaths of those in order to identify the articles that were about questions of human nature and arrange those chronologically, and then thought, oh, you know what's really interesting about this story? The professional conversation and this popular conversation, this colloquial conversation, they don't match up. There's actually different things that are happening in them. Uh, and so throughout the book, then I try to weave those conversations together and to look for moments of connection and um, and difference in what happens. And one of the things that I find super interesting is that actually it's the difference between them and conflicts between them that create the story itself. And, and that's really fascinating to me because I was wondering when I was reading the book and, and, you know, just jumping off of what you just said, how one could go about reading the kinds of sources that you worked with um, when questions of genre, audience, all of these sort of classic questions that we sort of teach people who are starting to read these types of things about, they really, I mean, are front and center in in, in your book because you're looking across such a, such a giant range of, of, of things. And I guess I wonder sort of about a, a chicken and egg sort of thing. How did searching for this particular debate in these biological, sociological, popular, pedagogical texts affect your practices of reading? And did you sort of go in looking for that conversation or did it sort of emerge as you laid these things out chronologically? I'm just, I'm really curious about how your practices of reading these sources um, sort of emerged over the course of you were looking for this big question um, mm -hmm. in all of these very sort of different types of types of texts. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I really did is I simply followed the paper trail, and I find remarkable. Uh, so one of so. First of all, I was interested in how people were reading these sources at the time. And one of the things that I find fascinating is that when the uh, Man of Course of Study program came out, was published, it was something that professionals talked about. It was reviewed in professional anthropology journals. The films that constitute the basis of the educational material were sometimes reviewed independently of the pedagogical program in which they were associated. And it was clear that people, uh, people's entire careers were built on uh, filmic ethnography, which formed the core basis of the Manor Course of Study program, and, um, and really developed as a form of evidence, in part because of their experience working with Manor Course of Study. And um, and so by tr by carefully tracing the ways in which these diverse set of sources were reviewed and became part of the professional conversation as well as the colloquial conversation was exactly what I was doing. So for me, it was a matter of just following 
where the citations led, and then also looking for people talking about other things. So one of the uh, forms of evidence that I use that I have an entire chapter about that I was super excited uh, to include is uh, popular movies. And so there's this question of like Sam Peckinpah and his movie Straw Dogs or Planet of the Apes and um, and 2001 A Space Odyssey that all wrestle with questions of human nature and violence. Well, it turns out that the movie directors actually talk about Robert Ardrey and Desmond Morris and think about the ways in which they should be, especially for 2001 A Space Odyssey, the ways in which they should be the most scientifically accurate that they can be. And we know that about uh, Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke's vision of space future and space travel, but I think that it had not fully been appreciated how much they were really trying to engage with the latest paleoanthropological research in creating their vision of what early humans might have looked like in that opening scene, uh, The Dawn of Man. Um, And I try whenever possible to excavate my historical figures readings of these diverse sources themselves, because I wanted to be able to recreate what the larger scientific conversation around these sources and these materials was. That was my goal. And for me, it was hugely surprising that that scientific conversation was as widespread as it was. Um, And so that for me was very much something that came from the research. That was not something that I was expecting to find at all. Um, The fact that Stanley Kubrick uh, invokes Robert Ardrey and uh, the colloquial scientific conversation as a justification for his representation of human nature as inherently violent, I was just totally shocked by. Um, And in part, Robert Ardrey, uh, before he became a... Uh, a popular writer of uh, human nature um, worked in Hollywood as a script writer. And so that was actually a physical connection. I don't know uh, that they knew each other, but they certainly ran in some of the same circles earlier. And so it just really emphasized for me how personal and how interconnected these conversations, these scientific conversations are. Scientists are not just working at universities. They are also having conversations with people in the grocery store and their neighbors. And uh, that leads to a much wider sphere of influence, of personal influence, than I think we have a tendency to take account for when we just look at how scientists are talking to other scientists. Part of what I was struck by in the book is, is how you frame this story in a number of different contexts, one of them being um, that of the, the Cold War and the competition and conflicts that arise in the context of the Cold War. Um, can you say more about why that is, is significant for the debates over human nature, for the place of scientists in, in, in American society? Yes. the I think of the influence of the Cold War in two different ways. One of them is that there, it provides a moment of 
well, a long moment, not a moment, like decades, <laughs> of uh, concern about the future of humanity and a real concern that there, in fact, will be no future to humanity. I grew up and uh, moved to the U.S. in 1985. And one of the things that I remember about coming to the U.S. in my first year, so I was in sixth grade, 1985, and I remember watching the Challenger explode when I, I was sitting in my elementary school classroom, watching it on TV with all of the other elementary school students. And there was a, a real fear that there was no future to humanity. And I remember feeling, you know, in that way you do when you're 11, <laughs> that, um, that maybe I would be okay because it was pretty clear to me that the you know the Earth would continue even if we're, humans weren't on it. And so, if there were a nuclear war, would we really bring about a death to all life? No, there would be a future to the planet. We might just sort of manage to kill ourselves. And I think that if you had talked to people six months ago that would have felt like a really weird conversation, right? Like really you had that kind of existential reckoning when you were 11, like how weird that that would be something that was going on. Um, and I think that for me, the Cold War really in focusing on the future of humanity provided a mechanism for looking to humanity's origins as a possible source of answers for how we should be addressing the larger existential questions that presented themselves to humanity um, at the time. And now I think in the age of COVID-19, all of us are going through a, an existential crisis of a very different kind, um, but all of a sudden actually questions of the future no longer seem so obvious. Um, and I had talked before about the ways in which crisis thinking really shifts what's going on um, in terms of scientific attention. And I think that crises, when you look at them, a crisis is something that scientists and the general public uh, decides is important and requires a lot of attention. But it's always interesting to me what rises to the level of crisis as opposed to things that are systematic, and are omnipresent, and so therefore somehow seem insoluble in a way that something that is new requires a great deal of attention to. And, and I think the questions of systematic social injustice, of economic disparity, um, they are the factors that fundamentally underlie the crisis that we see. But the crisis itself is manifesting as one of public health, of a virus. And so a lot of the attention can be paid to the virus, but the effects of that virus are actually very, um, are not felt equally in society. Um, and I think that the same thing can be said of the Cold War, that there are ways in which the rhetoric around the Cold War drew attention to existential threat as one kind of thing that needed to be addressed through the question of nuclear weapons, uh, through international cooperation, and then also sidelined other kinds of conversations that were behind that. And so that's one way that I see the attention devoted to human origins 
and to human nature and the the essence of human nature during this time period as uh, being quite intimately linked. And the other is the ways in which um, biological organization played a role so that the Cold War, I think, made it possible to think about bi biological organization as uh, easily generalizable between uh, individuals, groups, and nations, because the solution that people were looking for was really one of nations, but they wanted to um, refract that through evidence gathered about individuals. And so that actually the, the kinds of evidence that people are using and what is seen as persuasive, I think is also affected by the Cold War rhetoric. That makes a great deal of sense. And I guess I, I wonder, um, to return to the, to the question of pedagogy that is so much a part of the material in your book, how you hope this work could be taught uh, now to historians of science, to scientists, you know, to elementary school students if we wanted, um, and and even beyond, I, pedagogically, especially because y this work sits astride so many of kind of the traditional disciplinary divides that we think about when we think about education. Um, how could we go about talking about this kind of across the, the people who, who might constitute an audience for these kinds of questions? That's such a great question. And it is something that I wrestle with. I think that there are, so I would, re in answering it, I will return for a moment to Jerome Bruner's vision of why science education is important for elementary school students. And for him, it was a question of teaching students how to critically reason with evidence and come to their own conclusions. One of the things that I love about the MANA Course of Study program is that it is arranged as a kind of spiral so that students encounter some forms of evidence very early, but then they return to them later in the year, multiple times with increasing levels of other background information built in and are asked to consider and reconsider and reconsider the same question based on new information. And for him, he thought of this as teaching young people how to reason critically with evidence and how to learn to change their minds based on new evidence that comes in. Um, and I think that in a world today where questions of scientific expertise and trust and reason and forms of evidence that we have are so diverse, this is a fundamental um, What is it? It's, it's, <laughs> it's a fundamental form of reasoning that we ought to be teaching students. And I think that we do it in history. I think that we do it in philosophy. I think that we do it in uh, the humanities in general. And I think that we do it in the sciences. And um, it is something that we need to pay attention to. 
Uh, I think that when it comes to the moral import of research on human nature, that can also be seen in a number of different ways. Uh, one is that we do look to research on human nature, whether it comes from primatology, from paleoanthropology, uh, from cultural anthropology, as providing really fundamental questions and answers to the dilemma of what it means to be human. And one of the things that I have found fascinating about this particular question is that actually the cultural authority of who has who is speaking about this in a public venue, who is listening, et cetera, has actually shifted pretty dramatically from the cast of characters that I talk about to, uh, in recent decades, uh, cognitive psychologists, to uh, psychologists who are running people through fMRI machines and are asking about the trolley problem, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so there are different ways in which the, the fundamental question that the uh, scientists had over the course of the time span that I talk about in the book is really what does it mean to be human and how can we use science in order to better understand our answers to that question. And uh, the questions haven't changed. What has changed is who has the cultural authority to talk about it. Um, and so that's one of the things that I find really interesting is how those conversations have continued from the 19, sort of 1980 when the book wraps up through to the present. Um, and the other big lesson that I would take away is how important it is for scientists to be actively involved in public conversation about their research and um, about uh, what's happening in the United States and in the world more generally. And scientific communication is a field that has its uh, origins, sort of science journalism as a field, begins to take off in the mid-1970s and 1980s. So now there's a whole uh, set of professionals who devote their entire careers to science communication in a way that's actually pretty different than what was happening in the 1950s through the 1970s when a lot of scientists were doing that communication themselves. Um, and I think it would be great if more scientists were actively involved in that conversation as authority figures and as conversants um, uh, who are willing to open themselves up to these tricky conversations um, and to the moral import of their work. And that makes me think as well about sort of internal conversations inside of professional communities um, about the concern over the, the ways in which their work is taken up by some of the most violent parts of the public conversation. So whether it's medievalists talking about how the alt-right has glommed onto mm -hmm. their, their work, or whether it's, you know, white supremacy and its, you know, fascination with human origins and crania and all that kind of thing. Are, do you see that concern in the people that you talked about? Or are they, are they sort of, very much trying to do the kind of more positive pedagogical project that you're talking about. I, I guess I just wonder about these kind of f what are sometimes considered fringe aspects of the public, but increasingly become, you know, part of, you know, whether it's national administrations or whether it's public conversations or whether it's public safety, like, are they thinking about these, uh, these things as, as threats to their authority or, um, like, uh, what's the word, um, like corruptions of their work? 
or are they really thinking like this is our work this is how we transmit it to the public um this is how we transmit it to children yeah it really it really depends on who you talk about right um and so the answer is super different um it is clear that for Jerome Bruner, he was very self-conscious about the way that he wanted his work to be used and to be picked up. Um, but when it came to debating the um, to debating Man, a Course of Study, the program that he was so influential in creating uh, on the floor of Congress, he he chose not to actively engage in that. He had moved to the UK at that point and just sort of felt like if he were to come back, what what was the point of trying to have that conversation? And so there's a way in which I think the that communicating about your work to making your work accessible to general readers opens up the possibility of it being misread, of course. And there are people who are very concerned about that. Um, and there are also people who, so in, in the book, I talk about a number of scientists um, who actually do intend their work to be um, used for the purposes of um, talking about how there are real biological differences between races and there are real biological differences between the sexes and that those are fundamentally immutable. And so the invocation of science and the authority of science stretches far beyond any particular political perspective. Science is used by all political in almost all political argumentation. It's never a question, I think, of whether people are anti-science or pro-science, but what science they are invoking and why they think that that evidence is more persuasive than other forms of evidence and who they think has the authority that they are willing to listen to. Um, and so that's a, that's a pretty different perspective um, on some of the conversations that are happening right now. Um, but I do think that um, that science remains remarkably powerful. And you can see the power of science very explicitly in these fringe conversations. Because even the fringe conversations want to have scientific backing. Um, and uh, scientific research behind the claims that they make. They just invoke different sources. Yeah, that, that makes a great deal of sense. Um, and, and I'm afraid we have to wrap up in a second. But before we go, I just wanted to talk about how your account ends. It ends on, on a hopeful note. Um, so, I mean, you've, you've mentioned this uh, a, a little bit in, in your answers to the last couple of questions. But what sorts of legacies do you see for the people that you talk about, the debates that you talk about, killer ape theory, all of these kinds of um, moving parts in your story, um, and, and the debates over human nature that we've we've talked about, obviously, very explicitly um, in, in, in our own 
moment sort of kind of where do you see if you had to kind of draw this story out forward um where do you see that landing I think for me one of the one of the reasons that I'm willing to end on a hopeful note and then I think that in other hands it would not the book would not have ended sort of um quite as optimistically I think that I do tend to be an optimist and uh one of the reasons why even when dealing with the tricky material that I think about and wrestle with in the book is that actually you can really see the power of individuals to shape the conversation. These conversations about what it means to be human, about human origins, they don't come from nowhere. They come from very particular circumstances of people uh, willing to engage in a public conversation and to talk about uh, the questions that really drive them as intellectuals and as scientists. And I think that for me, one of the, the real reasons to be optimistic about the future is actually we do have the power to shape it. And um, that, would, that, would be, that would be my final word.